Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. So we're, we're kicking off a new challenge, um, and the challenge that we're uh, getting stuck into to start off the year is thriving within. And so today I want to focus on a key to thriving within, and that key is this. That's regular encounters with God. You want to thrive within? We need regular encounters with God. Now, I want a little disclaimer before I um, uh, preach tonight, and that is that this is not something that you do just completely by yourself. Neither is it something that you do completely just together in the body. The two things happen uh, at the same time. They have like a symbiotic relationship. Uh, Encounters with God individually will actually encourage you and spur you on to have encounters with God corporately and vice versa. And so um, when I'm talking today, I'm not talking about necessarily us just doing our own little thing by ourselves. That happens at the same time that we have encounters with God corporately. And praise God that we can do that again together in this space. It's wonderful to be back together. Now I'm going to pray and then we're going to uh, get into it. So God, thank you that you meet with us. I want to let that sink in just for a second. You meet with us. God of the universe, the God of eternity meets with me, meets with you. God, we are thankful for that, Lord. And tonight I ask that as I share this message that you again would meet with us, Lord. We're after an encounter with you, Lord. And it's my prayer tonight that as I bring this message, that there would be encounters with you that happen tonight, that happen tomorrow, that happen all through the week. Thank you, God. Amen. So um, when I turned 17, which was some time ago now, when I turned 17, I got my P's, which is sort of the thing you do when you turn 17. And um, I'm going to say a comment now, which is something that only old people say, but I'm going to say it now, realizing that I'm getting older. And that is that back then we didn't have as much money. That's something that parents say and grandparents say, and now I'm saying it, but it was true. Back then we didn't have as much money. And so the first few cars that I got weren't exceptional vehicles. Generally what you would do is once you got your peas, you would empty out your life savings to that point and you would purchase the cheapest, bombiest car that you could possibly afford. So I had three bomby cars before I got married and then just took my wife's car. Um, that's not the only reason I married her, but it was a consideration. My, my first three cars were all valued under $1,000 probably collectively. But my first car was actually this beast, which is a 1986 Holden Chimera. Yeah, very nice. Now, I actually got this car from a family member and I got a good deal on it. And it was a little bit fancy because it had automatic transmission, which was a novelty back then for a first car. We actually had to learn to drive using pedals and things. And it also had air conditioning, which was, yeah, pretty state of the art. It also had a cassette player as well, which, uh, which was good. Now, the problem with the aircon was that because, as I said, we didn't have much money back then. I didn't use the aircon, but it was there because the aircon chews through petrol. 
Much like when you don't have much money and you've got a cheap, bomby car, you don't use the engine when you're going down a hill. You switch it off, <laughs> save on fuel. The name Chimera apparently came from an Aboriginal word for wind. Now, I think the marketing people figured that you would assume that this car goes like the wind, but it was more like my Chimera just sounded like it had wind. Um, there, there were constant strange noises coming from under the hood of my Chimera. But because I was trying to save money so that I could pay rent, eat, go on a mission trip to India, I didn't have the heart to look under the hood. I had a lot of prayer in that car, praying that I would get from one place to another. Uh, I just kept it shut and hoped for the best. And so needless to say, that car did not last as long as I hoped that it would. Now, sometimes our Christian faith can be a bit like this. We can hear a message about having an encounter with God, meeting with God regularly, and we can get a bit of an uneasy feeling. We know that this is something that we probably would be worth our while, but we're happy to keep chugging along and just hoping that we'll be okay regardless. So our alarm might go off early in the morning and uh, for us to pray and meet with God and we look at the time and we just switch it off. You hit snooze or you throw it through the window, depending how tired you are. Or maybe a reminder goes off on your phone later in the evening to turn your phone off. Maybe you've got those settings that, you know, make it go all grayscale and downtime and you just override those settings and, uh, and keep doing what you're doing. Or um, maybe um, you actually get to actually opening up a bit of the Bible and you read about Jesus going and spending regular times up on hills early in the morning, just meeting with God the Father, and you just think, oh, gosh, that would be amazing, but, oh, it just feels so hard. I don't know if I can, if I can do that. So often this whole idea of spending time with God, having regular encounters with God, comes with this bit of a mix of shame and guilt. We know we really should be doing it, but it's just a bit too hard, kind of like exercise or eating organically. But the danger in this mix is that we are getting pulled into traps of religion with our time with God, rather than spending time with God out of a response for the incredible wonder of a knowing God who has made himself, a saving God who has made himself known to us. You see, our time with God is not something just to add to a to-do list. It's a response to the incredible wonder of knowing our saving God. And we've got to be careful that, that a certain level of discipline is required to make it happen. You do have to actually make an effort and get somewhat organized. But we've got to be careful that in that, making time with God doesn't become just a religious pathway to get into his good books. What, de- what Jesus did on the cross for us did that once and for all. He literally put you in his good book if you will just take his, his offer of his eternal, um, of eternal salvation because of his sacrifice. So I think there's this element too when we start talking about encounters with God, but I think there's something else as well which makes it somewhat of a difficult subject at times for us. And I think that is our general reluctance as humans to being still in general. Now, aside from being a technologically addicted society, I believe that humans innately love to be distracted so as to keep our minds off of the actual state of our souls. Time alone with God often means looking at the state of our souls. 
And no one, if they are honest, wants to do that. I love swimming and I love being out in the ocean and looking under the water. And recently for Christmas, I got a scuba dive just up at um, Port Stephens. And it's amazing seeing the amount of life that's just a few meters under the surface of the water. There was like big lobsters and stingrays and all these brightly colored fish. If anyone's ever been snorkeling or diving, you would know what I'm talking about. When you stick your head under the water, it's amazing under there. Now, um, the sea is full of fascinating life. And I want to show you a few examples of some of the fascinating creatures that live under the surface of the ocean. So this is the first one. And uh, this beautiful creature is called a stargazer. And it lives in the deep sea and it buries its body in the sand and it just stares out at you with its creepy, evil-looking face, waiting for something edible to come past that it can spring out and devour you. This is another creature, and this is called a gulper eel, and it has a mouth that is bigger than the rest of its body so that it can swallow things that are bigger than it. And it too lives uh, in deep water, about a one and a half kilometers under the surface of the water. Uh, this next uh, little collection, these horrors are called hatchet fish. And um, you will still be seeing images of their face when you close your eyes tonight <laughs> trying to get to sleep. And we all know this adorable creature. This is the anglerfish. Now, all of the fish that I showed you are deep sea fish. They live down where it's dark and dangerous. No one goes nuts for these fish. No one sticks their head under the water going snorkeling, hoping to see a stargazer staring back at them and lunging for their, um, their face. But I'll tell you something interesting about these fish. While generally they're in the deep water, at nighttime, because they like the dark and they get hungry, they come up a little bit. They come up to where the water's a bit more shallow. And if you like fishing, if you go when it's dark, there's generally more fish closer to the surface of the water. And that's because those fish are trying to escape from the horrors that are emerging from underneath. You'll never go for a swim at the beach completely relaxed ever again. <laughs> now, I think sometimes when we are still and alone with God, we can feel a bit like the ocean, right? It's when we're still that all of our horrors quietly drift up to the surface. Our doubts, our fears, our regrets, areas of unforgiveness, they often bubble to the surface when we are still. Comedian Louis C.K. described this feeling as the forever empty feeling that everyone has just under the surface and only bobs up when we're alone and still. It's a feeling that he says we are frantically trying to avoid with technology and distraction all of the time. As soon as we're still and alone, that's when all of our junk starts bobbing to the surface. And so I think that this adds to our desire sometimes, or our, sorry, I won't say desire, to our struggle sometimes with spending time with God. There's a sneaking suspicion that if we're still and alone with him, we're going to be confronted with all this junk coming up to the surface. And it all sounds a bit hard and unpleasant. So it's best to distract yourself and to pretend everything under the hood is okay until it's really not. You're probably thinking, you know, great, you know, uplifting message for the start of the year. But look, there's a reason why I wanted to focus on this first, because 
I believe that you never really appreciate the solution to something until you understand the problem, right? We've spent some time looking at the problem. So now let's look at what the solution might be to being able to have more of these regular encounters with God. And I'm not really going to give you a formula today. My hope is that maybe I can give you a bit of hope, maybe motivate you a little bit, spur you on towards seeking him out to have more of this time with him. But I want to get to the solution. The first thing I will say is that the solution is that we actually have a solution. Now, let me explain this, right? Without God, the best thing that you can get with all of your stuff in moments of stillness is mindfulness and mind-emptying meditation, and it acts as momentary pain relief. But with God, you actually have someone to hand over all of your junk and rubbish to. The solution is that we have a solution. Recently, um, Matt Stackhouse preached in some of the morning celebrations, and he took us through Psalm 42. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Psalm 42, it's a psalm that is a very raw prayer written by the psalmist who is suffering. And what makes his suffering even harder is he can't find God in the middle of it. It's got that famous verse in it that says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you. He's having trouble finding God. He's dry and having trouble finding him. And I love this about the Bible, how it includes verses like this that don't sugarcoat the human experience, right? Life can be really difficult, and the Bible doesn't shy away from that. One of many reasons why it's clearly God's word. But I want to look at this psalm, and particularly I want to look at a refrain that pops up both in the halfway point of the psalm and also at the end of the psalm. So in verse 5 and in verse 11, there is this refrain that in the midst of this suffering, the psalmist says twice, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. In the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his loneliness, put your hope in God. This is the difference of the Christian faith. We have someone to take our stuff to. Our horrors don't just bubble to the surface in the quiet just for us to frantically try and bat them away. No, we have an all-powerful, all-loving God who we can cry out to meet with us. Suffering is one thing, but suffering alone is another thing altogether. Suffering is one thing, but suffering alone is another thing altogether. And with God, we never have to suffer alone. Never have to suffer alone. He is there to take whatever comes to the surface. And while sometimes it may take longer than we'd like, he's always willing to work through our stuff. Never shies away from it. We read this in Psalm 139 which says this, Lord, you know everything there is to know about me. You perceive every movement of my heart and soul and you understand my every thought before it even enters my mind. You are so intimately aware of me, Lord. You read my heart like an open book and you know all the words I'm about to speak before I even start a sentence. You know every step I will take before my journey even begins. 
God, I invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. Put me to the test and sift through all my anxious cares. See if there is any path of pain I'm walking on and lead me back to your glorious, everlasting ways, the path that brings me back to you. Praise God that we have someone who is willing to trawl through our stuff. Stillness with God is a whole lot less scary when you know that the God that you meet there can handle your stuff. I want to look briefly now at the story of Job. Now, I've touched on this one a little bit in some of my recent messages, and it's such an insightful book as a whole. Now, you've got to be careful about quoting verses from Job. It's a book that really needs to be understood in context and read as a whole. Now, Job tells the story of a good man who is prosperous in every way. He's faithful to God and God speaks well of him to his angels. And the story sort of opens up with God basically bragging about how wonderful Job is to all of the angels. Now, Satan, who can't stand this sort of thing, reckons that he wants to prove a point here. He wants to prove to God that people only serve God when God blesses them. Satan reckons that no one would love to serve or follow God if life is going terribly and God is not blessing them. So Satan goes after Job to prove his point. And Job loses all of his wealth, and more tragically, he loses all of his children. And Job is devastated. And his wife gives him this helpful bit of advice and says, you, just be, you, you should just die now. That's the advice that she gives him. And he goes and sits in rags with dirt all over him, and he just cries out to God asking, why did this happen to me? And then he has a bunch of friends who come and give him a whole bunch of very unhelpful advice. And main reason being is they're stuck on this notion that Job must have done something to upset God or displease God and that's why this happened. They seem to be stuck on this standard religious paradigm of do the right thing by God and he'll do the right thing by you and vice versa. Now, this is why you have to read the book of Job as a whole, because for 34 chapters, we read a whole lot of crying out, a whole lot of arguing, a whole lot of bad advice. And it really seems like it's going nowhere. But then in chapter 38, Job gets an answer from God. This is the climax of the story. So we're going to read from verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Probably wasn't what Job was hoping to hear. (laughs) So I imagine Job braced himself and God doesn't let up. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. This is just the introduction. God goes on like this for the rest of the chapter and for the three chapters after that. He only pauses momentarily to let Job speak, where Job basically says, yeah, keep going. (laughs) And God does. He goes on and talks of his justice. And he goes on to talk about how 
Only he can control the weather. Only he provides food for the lions. Only he provides food for the birds. Only he understands all the rhythms and behaviors of all of creation. And then he goes on to talk about the power of these two ancient animals that may or may not have been the hippopotamus and the crocodile. They could have been something completely different altogether. And then he finishes. And once he's finished, Job replies in chapter 42 and from verse 1, we read this. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And after this, Job says no more. His wealth is restored, and though his children don't come back from the dead, he is again given peace and prosperity. And do you know the thing that gets me the most about all of this? God still hasn't answered Job's question. He never tells Job why such trouble happened to him. Now, this is profound because, you see, Job didn't need all of the answers. I want you to look again at verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. You see, the reason that Job no longer needs an answer is this. It is because Job's encounter with God is enough. Job's encounter with God is enough. You see, when you encounter God in the middle of your suffering, you might not get the answers as to why you are suffering. You might not get a resolution to your suffering, just like Job never got his children back, but you know right in the depths of your soul that you have a good, good God who can handle your suffering, and that encounter is enough. When you encounter God, you know that there is hope for your brokenness. When you encounter God, you know that there is healing for your pain. When you encounter God, you know that there is joy for your sorrow. When you encounter God, you know that there is light in your darkness. Because when you encounter God, you realize in the depths of your being that you are not alone. And what's more, you forever share your life with the God who loves you and who is good and will guide you through it no matter what the hardships may be. A God who, when all is said and done, will finally make sense of your life and bring it to wholeness, wiping away every last tear from your eye. An encounter with God is enough. A few years ago, when we could still go on on planes, our family went on a holiday to Japan. Now, we'd been recommended holidays to Japan a few times by a bunch of people. And I always just wrote it off because these people tended to be Japan nerds. Everyone knows a Japan nerd, right? Uh, There are plenty of people my age who are Japan nerds and I didn't want to become a Japan nerd. In fact, there was a popular uh, website and book around just over a decade ago called Stuff White People Like. And Japan was number 58 on that list, along with other things such as travel, coffee, farmer's markets. And I really didn't want to fit into that box, right? I'm already clearly very white Anyway, so just to illustrate the point, so this website, number 58, what it says about Japan is this. 
All white people either have, will, or wish they had taught English in Japan. It is a dream for them to go overseas and actually live in Japan. This helps them not only because it fills their need to travel, it will enable them to gain important leverage over other white people at sushi restaurants <laughs> where they can say, this place is pretty good, but living in Japan really spoiled me. <laughs> I've had such a hard time finding a really authentic place. So if you find yourself in an awkward silence with white people, just mention how you want to go to Japan and they will immediately begin talking about their trip to Japan <laughs> or their favourite stuff from Japan, but it will be entirely about them. And this is useful as you no longer have to talk and they will like you for letting them talk about themselves. <laughs> so I'm not too proud to say that this is the reason why I resisted going to Japan. I didn't want to fall into this box. But then something happened and we ended up going to Japan. And uh, we had an amazing holiday. The food was amazing and better than the Japanese food here. The sumo wrestling was even better. I didn't participate, I just watched. <laughs> the snow was incredible and the public transport was on time and clean. Now, I've become one of those Japan nerds. And uh, if you ask me about a great country to go on a holiday to, I will not hesitate to recommend Japan to you. Now, the reason is not because it's popular. It's not because I read it on that website and thought, oh, it must be good. No one convinced me that Japan makes for a great holiday. No one argued me into it. No, the reason is because I experienced it for myself. Now, life is full of things like this. Think of the movie that you love the most or the song that you love the most or the food that you most like to cook, or the football team or sports team that you follow. No one argued you into submission, into liking those things. You like them because you experienced how good they are for yourself. Psalm 34 verse 8 puts this challenge to us. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience him for yourself. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Now, this verse doesn't exist in isolation. It is a popular one, but it's part of a full psalm. And I just want to look at some of the preceding verses from 4 to 6. It says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those to, that look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of all of his troubles. This psalm is written by someone who is suffering, who was swimming in their own ocean of horrors. And what happened? Were all of their questions answered? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But what I do know from this text is that this person obviously had an encounter with the one true God. An encounter with God is an experience that will change your life forever. Job encountered God and he went from being a broken, miserable man to a man who could regain his position in the community with hope and with dignity. Moses encountered God and he went from being a fugitive with an identity crisis to a leader who spoke with the king of Egypt. Paul encountered God and went from being a murderer and a religious zealot to a missionary 
who willingly gave up his life for the gospel. The Bible is full of these stories. People who encountered God and things changed for them. And it wasn't through an argument. It wasn't through a debate. It was through an encounter. Elijah went from depressed to content. Hannah went from hopeless to confident. Esther went from submissive to bold. Peter went from denying Jesus to proclaiming Jesus. And it's not just the Bible that's full of this sto- these stories. History is full of these stories. People whose lives turned on an encounter with God. People whose lives went from death to life. People who were once critics of the church becoming church planters and church pastors. People who were once drunks and drug abusers becoming filled with the Holy Spirit. People who were once broken and lonely now thriving and in community, all on an encounter with God. And it's not just history that's full of these stories. This room is full of these stories. We could go around and everybody could say something about what happened when they encountered God. And you would see and hear about a life that was completely changed and transformed. And you know, the amazing thing about this is that our life is not limited to just one encounter. The first encounter is a big one. I'll give you that. It's huge. It changes your life. But because of what Jesus has done for us in giving us access to God the Father, we can encounter God every single day. Every single day. You know, the key to thriving within is to meet with God as often as you possibly can. If one encounter can change your life forever, imagine what an encounter every day could do. What I believe is that what an encounter every day does is it doesn't just change your life, it changes the lives of people around you. So this is an invitation. It's not a guilt trip. I don't want you to add this to your to-do list. You don't get brownie points for meeting with God. He just changes, his, changes your life. Okay, and that's just because that's his nature. You can't meet with the God of the universe, not walk away unaffected and unchanged. (laughs) Just doesn't work that way. He's a master of working through our ocean of horrors. He's not scared of what's under the hood. And every day he is really, really keen just to meet with you and change your life. He gets a kick out of that. He enjoys doing that because he loves you. He really does. He hopelessly loves you. And so there's the invitation. I want to offer you two things tonight. Firstly, I want to offer you a chance to meet with God right now. You can meet with him right now if you like. Not because there's anything magical about me or about the music or about this place. It's because there's everything supernatural about him. And he's moved heaven and earth to be able to meet with you as often as you would have him. And the second challenge that... I want to um, pray for is that not only would we allow him to uh, meet with us now, but that we would maybe start thinking about how we could maybe let's start small, meet with him one other time before next Sunday. And as I pray, I just want to pray that God will put like places and ways and times for that to happen for you. So I'm going to pray for those two things. And then after I've done that, the music team's going to play to help us keep our minds on Jesus And I'd invite you to have an encounter with God. And if you've never had an encounter with God and you think, I've never had anything like that, 
in my life ever. I don't think I've ever encountered God, heard about him, but I don't know much about him and I've certainly never feel like I've met him. Then would you take the opportunity tonight to have someone pray for you and to um, make some introductions so that you can have an encounter with God? So I'm going to pray. God, thank you that you literally have moved heaven and earth in order to be able to meet with us. You just want to be with us like a good and perfect father just wants to be with his children. You enjoy us. You love being around us. You, you take delight in us. So Lord, I want to ask now, God, that um, we would take a moment now to just encounter you, that as this moment of worship happens, that we would take up the offer to just have an encounter with you. Whether that's standing up on our knees, hands up, whatever it might be, Lord, we want to just come towards you and have an encounter with the God of the universe. And for those of us who've never had that happen before, Lord, I ask for boldness and for them to understand that you did it all for them. There is nothing more special about anyone else here. You desire to be with each and every single one of us. And the second thing, Lord, I want to pray for, I want to pray for our weeks this week. Lord, I ask that you would give us ideas in our mind right now about how we're going to facilitate having an encounter with you this week. Would you right now put a time on our heart, put a place on our heart, whether it's the morning, whether it's the evening, whether it's in our rooms, whether it's down at the beach, whether it's while we're running, whatever it might be, Lord, put a, something concrete on our hearts and on our minds right now, Lord, and give us boldness to share that with someone so that we can encourage each other to do it, to meet with you again this week, have an encounter with you this week, not just to wait till next Sunday, Lord. So Lord, I want to lift those two things up to you, God, and thank you that you desire to meet with us and that an encounter with you changes our lives forever. Amen. Oh, 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 oh,